With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. From the pages of the DRaysBay.com blog, welcome to The Hit Show. Hello and welcome back to The Hit Show. It is June 20th of 2017 and the Tampa Bay Rays are in the middle of facing the Cincinnati Reds, a team that normally gives them problems. But tonight, they actually won. I think it's only their fourth win in the last 14 meetings with the Reds, uh, spaced out over many years because those matchups rarely happen. But Alex Colomay made it interesting. Uh, Might have shaved a couple years off of Darby's life as he stressed out. But, Darby, you're here with me. Uh, uh, How did we feel about that game in general? Uh, The game in general was great. Um, the ninth was not as fun, uh, but yeah, the game in itself, it, Alex Cobb looked like a uh, kind of vintage Cobb and that was really nice to see. He was actually using his changeup a lot. Um, Neil Salons, uh, had a tweet about it. He said friend that podcast, uh, friend of the pod, um, you know, also the other podcast that you should absolutely be subscribing to and, and listening to, um, he tweeted out, uh, that Statcast had Cobb with 23 changeups. Mm-hmm. So that's good to see, and uh, they were really sharp. They were not just well, he was using well, them. Well, most of them. Well, yeah, most of them. Most of them. There was, I mean, uh, one of them got crushed. I don't remember who hit the ball because it's just generic red player, so excuse me. But one of the change-ups did not split at all. But there were a couple of them, especially late, where he was breaking it out, and it was that true gravity ball split change where uh, the massive break came in. I'm really excited about this version of Alex Cobb because Alex Cobb was ace-ish or, you know, the ace before uh, the, the Chris Archer appearance. And he was that because fastball changeup and a decent curve. But taking the changeup away, he had to adapt and he had to become this fastball curveball pitcher. And if that curveball is now on par with a good split change, the, the pitch that made Alex Cobb ace then all of a sudden Alex Cobb is performing at a whole new level. So in the second half of the season, we could get this really neat, really cool pitcher who can go 115 pitches when the Rays want him to uh, because he puts in the requisite work and and makes sure that he's physically capable of doing it. Uh, I I had very low expectations for Alex Cobb heading into this year, particularly because those post-Tommy John starts showed that there was going to be some growing pains and a lack of a change-up. Um, but if the change-up comes back, holy Moses. Yeah, I mean, if you take if you take a pitcher's best pitch away, especially one that like was his money pitch, his, his strikeout pitch and his out pitch, uh, it's, it's usually not going to bode well. But uh, yeah, like you said, Cobb is, you know, he's working hard at at having to pitch a little bit you know, I develop that curveball, develop a little bit of a, I guess, another weapon for himself. So, yeah, if, if the changeup is coming back and if he's working that back in and we can actually see the thing, uh, as it's been called before, that that split changeup mm-hmm. that was so devastating, um, mixing in with a, a, a now better than average, um, almost plus curveball, that would be a, a really good pitcher. But um, it's good, just good to see Cobb, you know, pitch well and like actually um, go deep into the game. It, he, he's such a competitor. Uh, you know, watching the game today, you know, every ball that he lost, you know, he gave up a lot of two out hits today and man, oh man, he just, he, he is uh, spitting mad every time he gives up like a two out hit. Well, there he, were a lot of errors that didn't show up in the error column. That was it. There were, night. there were uh, Peter Borges and Corey Dickerson in the outfield did not have the uh, prettiest of games out there. There was a couple what of... should have uh, been three errors between the two of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, three if you really want to count. 
They, he Peter Bord just tried for a big dive on one, but then there was a couple that were just uh, pop-ups that uh, miscommunication. Yeah, one following in no man's land. Technically, uh, technically, glancing off the glove. Yeah, te- I mean, so baseball again. Errors are one of those really, really terribly untelling stats uh, in baseball that should probably die off already, but they still are around. And an outfielder and a pop-up, if you just stood there and it just dropped right next to you, if it doesn't touch you, it's not really an error, even though it's mm-hmm. an error, because that's a pop-up. It's a, you know, a 99 percentile uh, catch. Um, so, yeah, it, it was... There was some definite reason for frustration for Cobb. Um, Mostly yeah, for the- wasted pitches, and Rays Radio made a good point of that today mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and Neil Solons, I believe, was t- tweeting about it. Uh, it was a topic of discussion among the beat guys, but Alex Cobb wasting pitches. Uh, an error happens, or it should have been called an error sort of play, and then Cobb has to waste nine pitches to get the next out. Those kinds of things weren't necessary. We're complimenting Cobb for being able to go 115 or whatever it might be. But if you could get uh, seven full innings and subtract 20 pitches, and then Cobb's sitting at 95, he can come back out for the eighth. And when the Rays don't always have the most dependable bullpen this year, they have an average bullpen, to be clear. Uh, it's, it's not sexy. It's not terrible. It's just kind of run-of-the-mill. And that's okay. Uh, it's keeping up with the Joneses, I think, would be a better way of looking at it. But an eighth inning out of Cobb would have been fun. Uh, I will say, uh, I can't remember a time this year where we had three starts in a row where a pitcher went seven innings. I uh, Yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, I'd have to look it up myself, but it feels like it's been either a long, long time or it hasn't happened this year. It's been not a typical raise season from the starting pitching, uh, and they've had a lot of injuries, too. So... It is really nice, especially with Jake Odorizzi in there. Um, right. He's been really Jim special. Turvey, Jim had a fantastic article on the site today talking about uh, how Odorizzi is kind of this question mark amongst flyball pitchers. He kind of said, look, here's 11 of the extreme flyball pitchers in the majors. Two of them are very successful, and the other ones have not been. Uh, and he's looking at, you know, from the All-Star break of 2015, which is kind of this... Uh, quote-unquote, juiced ball era, if you will, where the baseball is just kind of popping a little bit more. Uh, 11 extreme fly ball pitchers. One of them is Max Scherzer doing fine. One of them is Dan Straley doing fine. And then number three on the list in terms of success is Jake Odorizzi. And the question mark is, can he continue to perform at a high level? So go to the site, check out what Jim wrote. I think that's one of the uh, best articles of the last week. Uh-huh. With, with full respect to Brett's recap last night, <laughs> which which uh, might be my favorite. I, I early in the season I uh, anointed uh, Brett Phillips with the best recap, but I take it back because I he has he has bested himself in that regard. Done it again. So, yeah, that was the uh, loss uh, yesterday to Cincinnati that Odorizzi, uh, um the Rays weren't able to hold on to when Alv. Verado came out. And the day before that, though, was Jake Faria. And we honestly needed to talk about Jake Faria. Absolutely. Now, we, we mentioned it a couple podcasts ago about um, about Jacob Faria. He kind of he, he came up for a start, pitched amazing, went back down, and then Matt Andres uh, re-pulled his groin. So, mm-hmm. so then he was out. Uh, so Andres is out for a little while which meant that Jacob Freya gets his chance again. And, oh boy, I don't know if he's uh, taking that shuttle back to Durham anytime soon. No, I, he's here to stay. This is ridiculous. There was a list of three Ray starters who ever been credited with a win in their first two starts, and he's been credited with a win now in his first three starts. And he's he reminds me of other guys like Alex Cobb that have come through the race system quietly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you had this floor of major league competence, and you're saying, okay, this guy knows how to pitch. Uh, when he's ready to come up, the Rays will bring him up, and we'll just see what happens. I don't I don't think I anticipated this level of success. Now, uh, I'll say it again: I hate wins and losses. I'm mm-hmm. in the sabermetric mm-hmm. camp on that, but I do think uh, they are useful to tell a story. I'm not in the kill the win camp. Because I think you can actually learn something from the win. 
for instance, uh, Chase Whitley has two wins this season. That does actually tell you something. Alvarado has two losses this season and no wins. That tells you something about our bullpen. Uh, Jake Faria has three wins credited to him in three starts, and that's just remarkable for a rookie. It's it's remarkable for anybody. He's been, right now, uh, in his three starts, he is absolutely cruising through these starts. This isn't um, a pitcher that's, you know, getting a lot of BABIP luck. Um, he's getting a lot of weak contact. Uh, mm-hmm. Watching the start uh, on Father's Day, and again, we, we also mentioned this, his fiance is adorable. His father is also uh, adorable. This family is amazing. <laughs> I love them. I want nothing but great things for them forever. Um, his, his father was in the stands. So I, I was on the radio for. Yeah, tell me, tell me about the father interaction because I was listening on the radio. Yeah, um, Alex Cordry, uh, our, our silent reporter, who is who is awesome. By the way, just as an aside, it is really tough to lose Todd Callis because he is tremendous. But it is really awesome that he is getting to be a broadcaster and follow in his uh, unbelievable father's footsteps in that regard. He deserves all of the, uh, the awesomeness that's coming his way. Um, but Alex Cordry had some big shoes to fill uh, because we all know that Todd Callis can really fill out a pair of pumps. Um, but <laughs> Alex Cordry is doing a really good job. And um, she actually got to talk to Jacob Fria's father who made the trip over to see his son pitch and it seems like every one of his starts right now, he has a nice contingent of his family out there supporting him. And, and they're just, they're a delight. Uh, his father was talking about um, sort of supporting uh, his son and, and rooting for him. And then also talking about the, the now very famous uh, rubber duck story, which is apparently Jacob Faria's uh, good luck charm. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically... There is, a, there is a Twitter account. Faria has a longstanding uh, uh, fan Twitter account following Faria. 99% chance this is family, right? It's uh, almost certainly family, but but uh, actually there's an article um, that uh, the Durham Bulls uh, Medium uh, page or blog had that he, he says that it was, he thinks it might have been just like uh, some family friends um, okay. that started. That's fair. But, but uh, basically, yeah, it's on the inside. But now it's growing. It's growing fast. And the duck was a totally random thing that, uh, thanks to, according to his father, um, <laughs> they they had when he was uh, he was basically out to do a um, a tryout for I believe it was the Angels uh, mm-hmm. in high school. They the hotel kind of messed up their their room, and to make up for it, they gave him a little uh, you know goodie bag. With some food and snacks, and um, and also a rubber duck because okay, and uh, um, basically he you know he ate all the snacks, threw the duck in his bag, forgot about it, and then been pitching really well with it. And then he mm-hmm. decided, oh, what this duck is here, I'm going to get rid of it. Then he said he basically he left it behind, gave up five runs, and then got injured. And he was like, this duck needs to be with me forever. And so that's that's the story of the duck. And it's just, he's so endearing. Uh, but what's even more endearing was watching him actually pitch because, I mean, he he's just been carving people up. Uh, the Tigers, they 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 would just, this is a, a pretty pretty dangerous lineup uh, if you look at the Tigers. They, the Tigers have some issues this year, but really offense is not the biggest one. It's really that bullpen. Um, they still have Miguel Cabrera, who's not having the best season for at least his standards, um, because I guess his standards are triple crown, so anything less is not as good. Right. Um, but he he got Miguel Cabrera to to pop out weekly. He got grounders that were I mean know, ground balls not, for not days, Babip. not not Babip grounders. Yeah, these were these were like right at you know just not not like hard stung got things. These were these were just the weak grounders that end up as outs and pop-ups in the infield that end up as outs and a lot of strikeouts too. Um, so what's, what's great about Furia's repertoire, but also what makes him kind of slide down like a, like an Alex Cobb kind of slip through um, mm-hmm. is because he doesn't really have a blistering fastball 
and like a complete wipeout slider, which I think are the two really biggest eye-catching pitches that really rise and are very projectable. People like see those and they think, when, mm-hmm. once this person gets command, oh man, this, this can be dominant. Um, you look at Noah Syndergaard, that's, that's, you know, that's why you project it, because fastball sliders that, that look like Noah Syndergaard's uh, make you one of the most fearsome pitchers in baseball. But guys that have good command and a, a low to maybe mid-90s fastball, those aren't quite as sexy. But as we've seen from James Shields, as we've seen from, from Jeremy Hellickson, we've seen from uh, you know, Alex Cobb, those guys can be really successful in the major leagues. Um, so with, with Faria, uh, one of the things, you, you were mentioning this uh, in one of our last podcasts, um, and we kind of posted on the site a couple times, but his changeup, you got to throw in the James Shields changeup here, his changeup dances, and it looks great. Right. I mean, it's just really fun. This is just a Tampa Bay Rays picture. It's mm-hmm. a rising fastball. It's a Fulham changeup. And then, you know, affecting Nebula's breaking ball category. I mean, he's got a he's got a slider and a curve. I think following all the all the metrics, but I'm not convinced it's uh, that specified. I think it just might be in that I throw breaking balls category that Jim Hickey mm-hmm. likes to likes to categorize. Um, yeah, Brooks Brooks has it as a slider. It's, it's um, just it kind of has some pitcher. cut movement. Uh, yeah, it's it's but like you're saying, it's it's sort of like another breaking ball. His curveball he doesn't really use, but. Who knows? He could always develop one. Alex Cobb's a guy. Maybe you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's interesting. I think it's he's going to be quiet uh, in terms of, of fanfare or something like that. But he's quietly uh, made himself a very successful, very useful pitcher. And I don't see the race sending him back down. Not after proving yourself three times. Uh, particularly against uh, a high-octane Tigers offense. I think there's a lot to feel good about. Yeah, and and I think one of the things, obviously, you know, you think with this big of a start, obviously Faria is not going to be, you know, the most dominant pitcher in the world every start out, and there will be some struggles. That happens to all all pitchers, uh, even the best. But there is also reason to believe that he could get a little bit better. Um, He uses Mm -hmm. that changeup right now only about 9 to 10% of the time. Uh, he uses his kind of slider cutter mix uh, about a quarter of the time, and he uses fastball about like sixty percent of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's a really, really good fastball. We, we, I kind of mentioned it doesn't have the blistering speed, but it's a really, really good fastball. It's already showing to be a better fastball than some of those guys we mentioned, like Shields uh, or Hellickson, who really had a, a pretty negative fastball that they used to sort of pitch off of uh, their tremendous um, other pitches and repertoire. But Faria's uh, fastball is great. It, it does have great vertical movement. Uh, it, it, it fools people. And it because of his delivery, kind of an up, you know, kind of top-down uh, throwing yeah. motion, it really makes some batters. I, I, I couldn't help but notice that basically every strikeout, um, you had Tigers walking to the dugout and just looking back at the pitcher. Like, that's always a good sign <laughs> when they just strike out and then just look back being like, what the hell was that? Yeah, what did I just say? Absolutely fooled. And his changeup and fastball are indistinguishable. Because uh, I was trying to go back into the tapes and watch that. When he, he throws a fastball, when he throws a changeup, it's really hard to tell which is which. And mm-hmm. his changeup drops about 10, uh, 10 miles an hour different. Uh, and it has some yeah. pretty wicked movement. And that that's a tough thing to tell. So over-the-top delivery and repeatable delivery. I think that's those are really good keys. Yeah, yeah, repeatable deliveries and and good command of the strike zone. That's that's how you pitch in the major leagues for a while. Well, should we level set? Absolutely, yeah. So the Rays are thirty eight and thirty six. So we are two wins above five hundred. We did peak. We peaked at three wins above five hundred. So uh, get amped. Uh, the Rays are third in the division with the Blue Jays. Uh, uh, two games back, uh, the Orioles also uh, two games back from the Rays. The Orioles starting rotation falling apart. The Reens, uh, there was something like the number of runs that they've allowed, and uh, they've allowed five plus runs in like some ridiculous number of consecutive games, like 
17 it's consecutive seven, games. 17 straight. 17 straight. Isn't Second that right? longest so I streak. Yeah. Second longest so, streak in 100 years. My goodness. So the other <laughs> the other team that's done worse is the 1924 Phillies. Correct. Uh, yeah. Which is that that stretch of Phillies time when they were literally the worst team in Major League history. Which, fun fact, uh, I have a uh, distant relative that was the ace of those Philly teams. The a- is there a lot of air quotations around ace? Oh, there there is plenty. So fidgety Phil Collins, which fidgety <laughs> is a, a remarkable nickname. Back when the pitcher's mound was actually a pitcher's box that they put in chalk on the dirt in the middle of the field. It was just a whole bunch of dirt. Uh, he would pace the box. So you wouldn't know when he was about to throw. And then all of a sudden he would release uh, when the batters released expecting it. Because, you know, box didn't exist, all that kind of stuff. And so that's how he became the ace of these Phillies teams with, a, you know, a five-year or something like that. And I, I, I'm forgetting which decade he pitched in because uh, he had a pretty long career. Uh, I believe that's when he overlapped with the Phillies uh, was in that time frame. And I probably should have looked that up before I started talking about it. So it, forgive me. Uh, I, I, while you were talking, I looked in him the up. Sky. I looked him up and he was in the 20s and 30s. Right, but was he on the 2014? It uh, baseball reference says no. He was on the 20 he was 1923, then a gap of time uh, and then then I actually don't know exactly what happened. It just sort of has like a block, <laughs> block a blank thing and then 1926 it says did not play in the major or minor leagues and then 1929. So and then he's back. ended. Yeah. And so 23 is when he was there. So for uh, it's still worth talking about. It's an interesting thing. Uh, <laughs> if they would have had him, if they would have had him, they wouldn't have lost. Uh, my my <laughs> mother's cousin. And I think I remember some crazy story about, you know, her wedding reception. He showed up late to the game because he was pitching that night and everybody um, was so excited that a major league pitcher was there and all kinds of ridiculous stories exist. Anyway, uh, so that was the 23 Phillies. The 24 Phillies are the only team that's done worse than the Orioles' current streak is. The Orioles are bottom of the division, one game below 500. So just for context, the Rays are two games above 500. The Orioles are one game below. Uh, This AL East division is just nonsense. So the Yankees are leading 38 and 29. They definitely have a strong lead. Uh, at home, they have 22 wins. Uh, the Red Sox at home also performing really well. They have 21 wins. And the Red Sox are a half game behind the Yankees today, June 20th. And they're kind of jockeying for that position. So, And a lot of that has to do with rainouts and all that kind of stuff. The Yankees have a redonkulous run differential. They have 108-plus in their run scored category. 108 win, uh, sorry, run scored amongst all their wins extra. That is a, I mean, I called the Tigers high octane earlier, and they don't even have a positive run differential. The Yankees being 100 over is just crazy. The only other team close to that is the Astros. Oh, wait, look at that. The Astros are at 109. They're even better. Yeah. Well, that's how you get to 47 wins, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. Astros well, the are Astros good. are running away with it. The, so the Yankees have nine less wins than that. Uh, I don't envy the uh, NL West, so I can't talk about the AL East too much. The NL West has three teams around 45 wins, including the Dodgers, who have 102 win di- uh, 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 run scored differential. Yeah. But Okay, so level setting. Uh, the Rays are third in the division and currently own the second wild card. And they have for a couple games now. So the this Rays team, in terms of the American League, is competitive enough. The AL East owns uh, both of the wild card slots and have for a few for most of this week. So the Rays are a good team, a competitive team. They're five and five over the last ten games. Uh, it's a it's a little wonky. If we're being honest, the Rays bullpen really needs to step up. They need to make a couple additions to the team and see how it goes. But, I mean, we do have people incoming. Actually, we had somebody incoming yesterday. Uh, yeah, the Rays made a very uh, Rays-esque move and uh, acquired Trevor Plouffe. 
uh, from Which, Oakland, who had recently been DFA'd. Uh, I think we agree is one of the whitest baseball names in Major League history. It is. It is an incredibly white name. He uh, he is for sure golfed in his life. This was a player who uh, he's thirty one now, but he kind of came into his own when baseball players peak. You know that age twenty eight. Uh, he was doing well for himself. He went into the free agency. He signed with the Oakland Athletics for $3 million. And it's gone abysmal for him. Uh, it, the situation with the A's, I don't know if it was just the roster construction or how much playing time he got or if he was just legitimately having a bad year. But the A's uh, designated him for assignment, said we don't want him anymore. And Tampa Bay said we will totally take him off your hands if you guys pay like all of the salary. Would that be great? That'd be great. <laughs> And and they did, so it's kind of perfect. And uh, so with the Rays, why it's such a perfect move is even in the offseason, actually, kind of Ploof seemed like a guy, you know, maybe a bounce-back guy who plays a role. He is not a guy you want being your everyday first or third baseman. Oh, uh, he's no. Not at all. Um, he cannot hit right-handed pitching at all. Uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't do that well, but he, you know what he does? He plays a role. He can hit the snot out of the ball against left-handed pitching. Um, mm-hmm. And even this year, where he is kind of struggling a bit, he's still he's still hitting left-handed pitching pretty well, and that's not nothing. And it's kind of the role that Ricky Weeks was playing as a, as a veteran, but, and now that he's but down. But with a, a history of plus defense on the infield corners. That's And that's a big thing. Ricky Weeks, who uh, is not quite as adept uh, defensively, to put it, like, mildly, um, does you know th- this is a guy who who has played pretty pretty sterling defense in the past and mm-hmm. actually tonight uh, if you if you watch the game uh, against the Reds or if you're if you're listening back and you watch the game uh, he had some really really tough plays at first um, there were some really close plays some tough throws some high and wide throws and he he did really well at first base and that's not his primary position at all but he he's a good defender he he has a very comfort for the field. Um, and this is a guy that that I think is just kind of the perfect raise type of position. You want a guy like this, a very solid um, veteran on the bench who has a history of performing pretty well, and you're getting him for basically nothing. And if he pretty doesn't much. work out, whatever. Who cares? But he uh, absolutely it, could. It does feel like the Ricky Weeks era is over. It, Ricky it might Weeks be. Is injured. He, yeah. So he could theoretically come back. But if Weeks came back, who would the Rays remove from the 25-man roster for him? It's kind of tough right now. I don't know. I mean, I think Plouffe would be the guy. But do you but really... Plouffe making a lot more money. Uh, Ricky Weeks was a minor league deal kind of guy. Came into the Rays clubhouse. Inspired the Rays clubhouse. Really helped with the culture. Uh specific media reports about helping with Tim Beckham and getting him uh, in that major league mindset that the race needed of him. Uh, I think he had brought a lot to the team and uh, in, in, in intangibles. Uh, the Rays need a lot brought to the team tangibly, particularly against left-handed pitching and uh, at first base when needed. And Plouffe's first showing here, uh, you know, it's not like he was hitting lights out i think he was one for three or something tonight uh or maybe at a walk or it wasn't i mean it's been two games i'm not trying to talk up trevor trevor ploof tyler ploof trevor ploof t T ploof yes um yeah he he, but he's he's he serves a role and it's a move that you don't expect the Rays to make if if you are just biding time until ricky weeks is getting back I think right. This make, does this feel like, like a, a yeah, like a real like almost a, it's sort of you know David DeJesus esque type of move. Um, yeah, maybe so. That that type of you know get a a solid veteran guy who's not expecting or needs to play. Uh, it's one mm. of those things too. Maybe Ploof isn't as bet as good as some of the guys the Rays have in the minor leagues. I mean, you know, you do have Willie Adamas and Jake Bowers and Casey Gillespie and. And some really big potential options, but those guys need to play. And coming right. up and sitting behind, you know, better players right now who are hotter, or having to bench. Like, do you really want to bench Tim Beckham right now for Willie Adamas? I mean, he might be better, but if Willie Adamas struggles, then what do you do? It's kind mm-hmm. of like let's let's let them 
play in Durham and actually get those reps and not just sit on the major league bench. Uh, and Trevor Plouffe will will absolutely do that. He will he will sit on that bench and he will be a good teammate. And he he's a, a useful guy. But you know that's mm-hmm. that's a it's a it's an unenviable role, but it's a really vital role for any big major club. Uh, a guy that could be a pinch hitter off the bench, a guy that will start against a lot of lefties. And, uh, yeah, while it's not a, a big, sexy role, it's definitely the type of moves that a team that's hunting for the playoffs uh, usually makes and should make. Right, and I want to get to that. I do want to finish the Ricky Weeks being a reintroduced thought experiment. So if you don't remove Trevor Plouffe, then your other options to remove would be uh, Peter Borges, who uh, I don't think the Rays are sacrificing outfield defense right now. Outfield defense is a little wonky on its own, as we've talked about in this show. Uh, and I don't think you'd remove someone like Borges, who has a history of plus-plus outfield defending for Ricky Weeks. That doesn't compute. I think Ricky Weeks played some outfield for the Diamond, the bad version of the Diamondbacks last year, so that's not going to work. Uh, uh, the other people that you could demote in his place... Uh, would be Daniel Robertson, who has earned a place on the Major League roster and has the confidence of the Rays uh, coaching staff to play great defense on a regular basis. So, no, he's the 25th man, quote-unquote, but he's higher up the pecking order than 25. And the other option is Tyler Featherston. And Tyler Featherston has the the up-the-middle defense. I'm not sure if we talked about him on the podcast or not. Uh, He was kind of picked up, uh, I believe, from the Angels in a trade. Uh, No, no, no. Phillies? Was he at the Phillies this year? I think he, he was, was an Angels Rule 5 draft pick. And then he went to the Phillies this year, uh, and then the Rays acquired him. He still has an option remaining. So perhaps he's the guy who gets optioned when Brad Miller returns. But I don't see anyone on the roster that Ricky Weeks uh, is better than or that the Rays would would demote in order to have Ricky Weeks on the roster at this point. Uh, Trevor Plouffe has definitely usurped him. That's my takeaway. Uh, Brad Miller, super hurt, though. This uh, this abdominal slash groin thing he has going on, uh, basically the media coverage was, hey, not improving, which makes me feel like maybe it's a hernia. Mm. I, I haven't done my due diligence on that, but if he has one of those, uh, what do you call them, like inguinal intercoastal, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember what they're called, but like those uh, hernias that are like inside the groin region. Um, I, I would be surprised. Just a horror show of, 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 of uncomfortability. Right? It just makes you scared to do physical activities when, <laughs> when you get those kinds of things. So I can't imagine playing baseball. Like, you don't want to stand up off the, when you're sitting on the couch, you know, out of fear. So perhaps that's it. But they're saying it's a groin strain, uh, but different from the, from the Andres kind of groin strain. So who knows? Uh, but Brad Miller is still super out. He's not coming back right now. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the Rays need to continue thinking about who they're going to add and what they're going to do to make this uh, team a little bit more exciting. Uh, But instead of trade deadline deals, I think the Rays are in an interesting position because they've added Plouffe early, but they also just have guys coming back from injury or being introduced to this squad this year off of injury that are going to be the, the equivalent of a major league addition at the trade deadline. Uh, oh, absolutely. For, I mean, if you yeah. if you're if you're going into the trade deadline and you can acquire a uh, catcher who hit 22 home runs last year and was good for Sterling defense as well for his whole career mm-hmm. and was a three and a half win player, along with a guy who is a, a former closer who's lighting up Triple uh, A right now. And a positional right, right uh, left-handed mashing um, uh, bench bat. That's a that's a good that's a good deadline, right? Like that, I would take that deadline. Most teams would go into the deadline, get a nice little splashy, you know, catcher. That's that's huge, and then a reliever uh, and a bench bat. A high leverage reliever, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what that's uh, that's a good deadline. You know, pack it up and and um, yeah, that's. I think you can count that as a success. The Rays are just going to do it a little bit early, about a month early from the deadline. And and necessarily so, particularly when the Rays are sitting third in the division, 
but you know, in pole position for playoffs right now, if the season ended today, they'd be in. So, but it's only June, and we have to be thinking ahead about these things. So, Brad Boxberger expected to join the team uh, after the Reds series. So, there's a day game tomorrow. Uh, so, audience, I don't know if you listened to this before. Or after that, uh, Friday though is the tentative time for Brad Boxberger to be reintroduced. That's really exciting. And then Wilson Ramos is at the tail end of his uh, rehabilitation. So Monday, he caught nine full innings, which is a huge milestone in his progression. Uh, today, he's a designated hitter. Oh, something like uh, Thursday, Friday, or whatever the Durham schedule is, he's going to catch a full game in back-to-back games. He's going to get rest again. And then I believe that brings him back into the fold on Sunday, assuming he travels on Saturday. So maybe the the tail end of the next series is when we see Wilson Ramos. But we could get Brad Boxberger and Wilson Ramos, the Buffalo himself, back right as the Rays are squaring off against Baltimore, who have been in the Phillies' tailspin. So it's a really interesting time for Rays baseball. Uh, And between the two of them and Senor Plouffe, uh, I don't know. We want the race to adjust, and they're adjusting. So it's kind of nice. Uh, is, are there any injured players we should be talking about that we haven't talked about yet? I saw that Brent Honeywell got removed from his previous start in AAA. Uh, that's cause for concern the moment you see that on Twitter, or if you just heard that from me right now on the podcast for the first time. I, uh, I am under the impression that he's not going to miss a start. So even though he did get lifted, I think it was precautionary and the Rays expect him to go back out there five days later. Um, but the other Durham pitchers that we've been wanting to see get back in the fold, uh, Taylor Guerreri, uh, he has not been pitching last year. He's a former Tommy John guy, former top draft pick for the Rays. Uh, he just had a really bad year last year. He was hurt this year. And his timetable is such that uh, we don't need to worry about seeing him pitch this year, I feel like. If he comes back this year, it's a pleasant surprise. I don't know all the details, but Guerrero's timetable is out the window. Uh, Jamie Schultz had his own groin injury, uh, which is... We we should just start saying lower body injuries because it's 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 just as vague and less uh, <laughs> devastating to hear. <laughs> um, it's in the cringes. Jamie Schultz, who, uh, along with Austin Pruitt, just dominated in spring training was a joy to watch pitch was so exciting to see the light of the gun uh he is still not back on the mound and this is beyond his timetable for recovery so he he's a little bit slower and that's a little disappointing but there's a non-zero chance we will eventually see jamie schultz but he's not pitching yet and uh if if you were paying close attention in the spring and you're wondering where that prospect is uh sorry he's not pitching yet um is there anyone we're missing in terms of injury? Well, I think the other big one is um, a guy that who the Rays, I think, were really counting on to come back a lot earlier than this, but has had some setbacks, and that's uh, Matt Duffy. Oh, buddy. Matt, Matt Duffy, Duffy bobblehead night happened, and he's not back on the team yet. No. So Matt Duffy got sent back to the doctor who performed his surgery. The, those are the, That's a sentence that usually does not end with, to high-five him for a job well done. <laughs> because he's coming back. No. <laughs> but he wanted to say, hey, good job, man, first. and Because that's very polite. No, no, no. That's not a... It's not oh. a great sign. It's not good. Uh, I don't have more details than that, but gosh, that's, that's a sad story. Uh, Kevin Kiermaier yeah, every... um, oh, yeah, still on the... Kevin is on the 10-day disabled list. I just want to point that out. Matt Andrees who, you know, we talked about his generic groin injury. Uh, he's on the 60-day. They put him straight over there to make roster space and let them do the kind of uh, 25-man roster experimentation that you're allowed to do when you move guys to the 60-day. Um, his timetable is basically considered farther out, like August, than Kevin Kiermeyer, who fractured his hip. So maybe we have reason to think, you know, KK's okay. Uh, I love how much he's still around the team, though. You see Make-A-Wish coming to the Rays Park to, for batting practice. You see uh, the players goof around in the dugout, uh, before games, after games. KK is there. 
he is still rolling with the squad, chilling in the clubhouse, sitting on the bench, motivating the other players. Uh, it's really nice and refreshing to see him there. Um, and it makes me feel like he's coming back or about to enter the game. So I, I, I'm projecting when I say that. That's not based on asking around or anything. But uh, KK, you know, it's not a two-month projection. So that's something you can feel good about. Uh, I guess the other guy to mention is Diego Moreno. He has been on the 10-day disabled list. I think he had a setback uh, just based on Twitter chatter. So that's another raise reliever that we're without. But to level set the bullpen, the bullpen is Colome, Tommy Hunter, uh, Brad Boxberger incoming, the, a tired Danny Farquhar, <laughs> who's just been used so much. <laughs> Jumbo Diaz, who's returned from injury and hopefully uh, was able to reset in that time. Chase Whitley, who I feel like is high leverage, but you're never sure. Jose Alvarado, who skipped AAA to be here right now. And Austin Pruitt, who uh, is the de de facto long man. I do wonder if at some point Erasmo Ramirez uh, drops into the bullpen. And I think that's something we should touch on very briefly. Erasmo is currently the fifth starter. Uh in his last few starts, he's been okay, but this is, uh, it really feels like the rope is running uh, out for uh, for his leash, I guess you could say, uh, because Blake Snell got demoted, and Blake Snell is also quietly killing it in Durham, and I wonder how long the race would allow Erasmo to continue to start when uh, Blake Snell in just four or five starts in Durham looks to be uh, realigning his stars. Yeah, this is. I mean, I think it is a short-term solution for Erasmo in the in the rotation. I think he does work better as a bullpen arm. Um, I he is just sort of holding a spot. I, I think you know with um, with Faria coming up and and performing that that locks down one spot. Erasmo is probably not even you know with, with uh, Jose de Leon kind of having a little setback injury wise. You know, he could have True. potentially gotten not a, disabled list level. Not disabled, right, list, just a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he could have been up for a spot start or something and push Erasmo, but he's out. Uh, Brent Honeywell, they don't want to add to the forty man just yet or, or bring him up yet. So understandable. But Blake Snell, he's going to be coming back sooner or later, um, and mm-hmm. heavy emphasis on the sooner. And he's really been pitching well down in the minor leagues. I think though the Rays are going to be a little cautious. Because when they call him back up, he can't go back down again. It, not not technically. He can definitely go back down again. They don't want to. That's that's not something you want to do. Just like going back to see the doctor that performed your surgery on your foot. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't want to have to be yanking Blake Snell up and down from the minors too many times. Sending him back is, I think, done a good job for him to work through some stuff in a lower stress environment, uh, mm-hmm. but still against some you know major league quality uh, competition. However, once he comes back up, that's got to be sort of it. Otherwise, you really have to to question, you know, what's going on. But I do think that's kind of that's a, a nice, you know, smooth move that can happen is coming up soon. I, I agree. I think Rasmus' days are numbered in the rotation, uh, and and Snell is going to take his spot soon. Don't know. That's a very nebulous soon, but it will be soon. Sure. One of the guys I wish we could see, but he's not on the uh, 40-man roster, so that kind of adds complications, is Yanni Chirinos. Mm. Uh, Yanni is a really interesting pitcher. He's got uh, a solid fastball that he can ride, a good splitter, uh, and a good slider. So he's kind of got uh, these these elements of a good race pitcher that you look for. He's a right-handed guy, and he's, you know, Possibly out pitching Snell over the last month, and even out pitching uh, Ryan Yarbrough, who was acquired this offseason, is another lefty AAA starter that you would expect uh, would have the ability to climb to the majors pretty quickly. Yannick Chirinos, you know, subtly performing very strongly. And if he were on the 40 man roster by now, I bet uh, there would be chatter about, oh, maybe we should bring him up. And this Rays roster is already going to have a crunch when we need to add uh, Boxberger in, add Ramos in. 
uh, one of those catchers is going to have to give, and I feel like it's going to be one of the catchers, either Norris or Sucre, and the Rays are going to have to make a decision on that. Now, I will say Derek Norris has options. Derek Norris also, in his age 28 season, a major league veteran, uh, you don't expect that kind of thing no matter how poorly he's hitting because he's just been up for so long. But And he's been the, the go-to starter for a while now. I do wonder if Norris is, is uh, quietly nursing an injury, stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm a little all over the map, but I just want to say if you, if you want to dig in, even just on fan graphs, and try to find the Durham rotation. There's a lot of things to feel good about. I feel like the Rays could lose three starters to a temporary injury and still be able to fill in uh, as necessary a couple of those starts. So luckily they don't have to. But this is Erasmo's kind of last shot. It's a afternoon game tomorrow against the Reds, and uh, if this does not go well for him, I don't imagine that Erasmo consider, uh, uh, continues being the fifth starter. Um, perhaps that's a media narrative, but this is not the time for Erasmo to mail it in. Uh, that's the major league side. I do think before we go, we should touch on the major league draft because our previous show, um, or two shows, if you count a little bonus episode reflected on the first round and, uh, two exciting things happened. One, the, uh, other rounds happened and two, <laughs> Brendan McKay has been pitching on ESPN, and that's really exciting. So Brendan McKay is the two-way player that the Rays are saying, we're going to experiment with this guy, we're going to let him do his thing. Uh, His team, Louisville, is in the College World Series, uh, among several Rays draft picks, actually, which is not necessarily typical. Um, Normally you just have like two or three, the Rays have a bunch. Uh, I should validate that before I say that. I feel like it's a bunch. Anyway, we have, a, we have a few. Yeah, we have uh, four. Uh, four of the drafts. Four. Okay, okay. So it's more than three, so I win. Um, <laughs> the, the point being is uh, Louisville made it into the final eight, and they sent Brendan McKay out there to pitch against Texas A&M, which is one of the better offenses in college baseball this year. And it was really, really interesting to see because a couple things stood out. Uh, Brendan McKay's fastball has incredible... And I think you could even say pinpoint command. And where that really shone was his second time through the order. So the first time through the order, uh, McKay was kind of feeling guys out. He's got a fastball. He does have a a cutter. And it comes in with fastball heat. So if he's throwing uh, mid-90s with the fastball, the cutter is just maybe like one or two miles an hour slower. But those are his two fastballs, a four-seam and a two-seam. And then uh, he's got... Two different curveballs, which huge props to Jeff Long for writing about this when I don't feel like I was seeing anyone else do it. Jeff Long writes for Baseball Prospectus. But he has a hard curveball and a standard curveball. So the hard curveball comes in around 83 miles an hour, and it's got 10-4 action. So on the clock face, it's going from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock coming out of his left hand. But when he slows it down, the movement actually shifts to 12 to 6. So even though they're both curveballs, they're two very distinct pitches. And he has command of both versions. And there's an excellent changeup. So there's a five-pitch arsenal upon which you could see five major league pitchers. And particularly when, and that's the Jim Hickey nebulous breaking ball region, those curves is saying he's got, uh, you know, we talked about Chris Archer a couple podcasts ago, having a hard slider and a slow slider, quote-unquote, with slightly different effects. He's doing the same thing with a curveball, but he's also doing the same thing in college, which is a lot different than when you've been sitting under Hickey's tutelage. And it was really fun to see him just go to work. Uh, Texas A&M couldn't do a lot with him, and... Uh, the first time through the order, and the second time through the order is when McKay really, really shown locating his fastball down and in on uh, left-handed hitters and putting him away, using that hard curveball to go away from batters. He was getting his strikeouts and racking him up. Uh, if you go and look at the box score, you'll see that he actually started giving up a whole lot of runs, and those runs came the third time through the order. And wow. Earned runs can seem like cold water, 
when you're talking about an incredible pitching prospect. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that worked against him in that. A, the quality of the offense that he was facing that was seeing him for the third time matters. B, I'm not convinced that his catcher uh, was calling a stellar game. In fact, uh, I think Louisville even calls their pitches from the dugout. Uh, which can have varying effects, particularly when you have certain things that are working and some things that are not. Uh, so third time th- through the order wasn't kind of that way. You know, it just felt like he ran out of ideas. The first mm-hmm. time, he was really experimenting with all his pitches. The second time, McKay was like, look, I've got this. And he was just really destroying, picking guys apart. He really felt like he was picking guys apart. He racked up six strikeouts um, over the first two trips of the order, and it was great. And then... It wasn't fantastic contact. It was the kind of stuff that was going up the right field line, and it could have been foul, but it wasn't. It was those kinds of moments where the college defense wasn't doing their job either. Uh, You know, the shortstop just mailing it in. Louisville ended up winning. They were really far ahead, um, and the offense was performing really well. Uh, But McKay had a, a fantastic start, and he's been soldering. Such a load. I know I'm ranting, and I apologize, Darby. But he has definitely been overused, overworked as a pitcher this year. And I am shocked that he continues to be able to pitch to the College World Series with any sort of of skill, considering how often he's had to pitch compared to his peers. Uh, He's gone 105 pitches in all but, I think, three starts this year. Uh, someone else relayed that to me. I, I didn't verify that myself. But it's just uh, an impressive workload for a college kid. Uh, when the Rays do sign him, which we expect them to do after the College World Series is over and they're allowed to negotiate with him, I don't expect him to pitch at all. Um, as exciting as it is to have this incredible left-handed starter... Uh, don't expect him to pitch because he his arm has to be toast, but uh, in a good way, in a way that's uh, shown that he's had a lot of major league success and confidence. So there, uh, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about McKay. If he's on ESPN again and he's pitching, I recommend checking it out, particularly for the first two trips to the order because I think you'll see something special. Um, McKay, also something special on offense. And if you read Baseball Prospectus, if you read what Jeff Long had to say about it, I do recommend checking out his report. He puts a 70 grade uh, out of the 20 to 80 scale. He puts a 70 grade on his hit tool and even says that the hit tool alone is enough to say he's a, a multiple times all-star potential kind of hitter, which is remarkable when we're talking about one of the best pitchers in the draft. So that kind of two-way potential that uh, you and I were pumped about and we're discussing uh, Jeff is out there saying look this is a very real possibility this is one of the best grades that we could give to a hitter uh, crediting bat speed crediting uh, quick uh, quick hands but loose wrists uh, barrel control it's a great write-up um, <laughs> I'm ranting about Brendan McKay, and we're going to be doing that for a long time, and we're pushing it in terms of time. But is there anything about the draft you wanted to talk about? Because uh, it was I, I feel good about this draft, uh, particularly if you listen to This Week in Rays Baseball. There were some great interviews with Mercado and Rasmussen, who we discussed in the previous episode. But any, any draft notes you want to uh, touch on before we go? Yeah, well, so um, with Mercado actually being signed, that was a really kind of pleasant surprise. He's... We were mentioning him, college high school or um, high, a California high schooler uh, who was committed mm-hmm. to Stanford. That's always a tough sign. So they went a little over slot, but not too bad. Uh, signed him for I think what was it two million, uh, two million hundred thousand for that. So not too bad. Um, Rasmussen will probably cost a little bit less too. So that's kind of the de- nice balance there. Yeah, came off injury, has been killing it for Oregon State. He closed out a game in the College World Series for Oregon mm-hmm. State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, just and a pitched talented well. pitcher. Yeah, yeah, he had like 14 pitches, a couple strikeouts. Um, yeah, he, he looks good. Uh, yeah, so looking at kind of the draft, a lot of people are kind of falling into place. Um, there's a couple of interesting kind of later round guys. Uh, Eric uh, Ostberg, who's a catcher from Hartford. Absolutely. There's a, bunch of really cool stuff about him uh to read about online i was just like kind of looking him up he's a guy that slipped a little bit in the draft he he absolutely could have gone a little bit earlier not 
again, these are, we're talking about the guys that aren't necessarily, you know, the first round, second round types, uh, but have, you know, these are these are the ways. This is where drafts become either good or or great. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you're make your money right here in that kind of like eight to twelve range. Uh, we mentioned Jacob. We talked all about Jacob Faria um, earlier. He uh, Faria was a tenth round pick. Um, mm-hmm. That that's the kind of guys that you have to to hit on to have that consistently strong farm system. Um, Eric Osberg was the top catcher that the Rays took in the draft. There really wasn't. Um, he, he was one of. He, he has a lot of really interesting uh, stuff behind him. He's kind of coming off of an injury, I believe. And, and yeah, so Neil Solon's pointed this out uh, on a couple occasions. He was the best hitting catcher in all college baseball at any level, and then he had uh, a, a knee ligament injury. So he's but, recovered but looking, from that. It is looking yeah. like yeah, he is recovering from that. So that's good. I mean, I think that's that's a. Obviously, knee injuries for catchers, um, that's always a big, important, uh, it's a bad injury to have, but he is looking like he could be a nice nice little steal there. Um, mm-hmm. Of the later round guys, that, that's the guy I sort of focused on uh, and, and ended up reading like one article and then ended up reading a whole bunch because he, he, he definitely seems like a very passionate kid, seems super, uh, super committed to just kind of working really, really hard and... Mm-hmm. He, he's already said, he, he immediately said, I want to sign, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a 13th round draft pick. I want to sign and prove myself. And he could have gone back. He was a junior. So he, he absolutely could have gone back, proven that he was healthy, kept hitting like uh, hitting the snot out of the ball and probably moved up about five to, to six um, rounds, maybe made him a couple, uh, you know, made him a little bit more money there. Mm-hmm. However, that this is, you know, kind of chump change when you really come into it. If he if he's like really committed he could be a guy that could move through uh, through a system, and this is a guy to keep an eye on uh, uh, for Rays fans. He's I, I think he's pick. one of those guys that the Rays also promised to pay his college if he wants to go back and, and get that final year if things don't work out. So that's kind of written into the contract. It doesn't count against your cap, but it, it's that nice little promise for the juniors. Uh, the 11th, 12th, and 13th round pick were all college juniors. So those kinds of elements of, hey, if this baseball thing doesn't work out and you go back to college, we'll pay that final year. Those kinds of things are really helpful and, and seem to bridge that gap. Uh, the Rays, uh, for their part, um, I'm talking to Rob Metzler, the, the director of scouting, he was really, really abnormally uh, emotionally excited about the 11th, 12th, and 13th round picks. So 13th is Eric Osberg, as you were mentioning, Eleventh uh, is Justin Lewis. Justin Lewis uh, it famously is cousins with Richard Sherman, for instance, uh, of the Seattle Seahawks. And then Carl Chester, the center fielder. Um, if the Rays had gotten one of those three guys at eleven to thirteen range, you would have felt good about the draft. And they have all three. And if all three have not signed yet, they're expected to sign. And then I'd also like to touch on the fourteenth round pick. A guy named Vince Bird out of Long Beach, uh, Long Beach, California. He is massive, like Aaron Judge-sized kind of kid. <laughs> um, and, I mean, some media narrative, right? But the race feel like he has good left-handed power, and they're, you know, the jury's out on the rest of the profile, I think. But he's worthy of being picked in the 14th round. Uh, he's a very exciting uh physical specimen with left-handed power and those kinds of things climb through the minors. So that's great. And then it really honestly looks like the Rays are going to sign all of their picks rounds one, one through 10. Uh, Brendan McKay, Drew Rasmussen and Taylor Walls, the shortstop out of Florida state who everyone in the media was like, Oh, they, they signed, uh, they picked a utility player. And then Rob Metzler was immediately like, no, we see him as a shortstop. You guys can cut it out. <laughs> But the point is, uh, there's some tweets saying their fourth-round pick, Drew Strootman, fifth-round pick, Josh Fleming, sixth-round pick, Zach Rutherford, who was um, very highly regarded on the draft boards heading into the draft, uh, and then seven, eight, nine, ten. All these guys seem to be signing. Mm-hmm. So this it, is remarkable. To have uh, the, the top 15 rounds, I think everyone's going to sign. That's pretty good. It's a it's an interesting draft because of that because I, you do see 
the Rays had a we talked about this last you know last time, but the the Rays had a, a very distinctive, interesting uh, strategy coming in, and I think it really showed off. And while Brendan McKay is going to get uh, kind of a looks like he's going to get a record um, contract for the first round, they got some really really good pieces, um, not just all value picks either. Some some guys that that stood out, like Zach Rutherford's a really good example of an, a guy that really really stood out to a lot of people who was starting to, sh- to really shoot up some people's draft boards, some teams. Um, Taylor Walls is an inter- another interesting, really, uh, a guy, again, close close in state, you know, at, at Florida State. There's some really nice picks here. And uh, th- this is a draft that the Rays kind of needed to, to get a lot of this talent um, from all kind of levels. So there's a lot of college guys that are going to be coming in pretty high up in the draft. Uh, but... There's some also some nice, exciting younger talents. It's an interesting draft. It, it was a different strategy that the Rays ha- went into this year than they have in many years. Um, but getting these guys signed, this is going to be uh, interesting to, to keep an eye on going forward because the Rays are going to be probably promoting quite a bit from the top uh, mm-hmm. in the next coming years. Um, the next two years especially, we're going to probably see uh, three-fifths of the rotation promoted um, as well as a few guys that were in the rotation that even had to be moved to the bullpen. So guys like who, uh, Schultz, uh, Honeywell, Faria, um, Stanek. and yeah, uh, Jose De Leon. Like these are, yeah, Ryan Stanek's already was up and now he's back down. Uh, Jake Bowers, Willie Adamas. Like these guys have, like, you know, the next two years, they're all coming up. And so you're going to kind of have, right now, Durham's looks good. There's some guys progressing. But it's going to be nice to add people that can maybe move through quickly and really keep that farm system stocked. You know, the Rays always have to kind of play for the present and the future all at once. And it's a tough balancing act. And it's a very delicate balancing act that can go bad really quickly. Um, but mm-hmm. this is this is definitely where th- this draft is going to be interesting with that idea that they are probably coming into a window where people are pr- being promoted you might need to add a few more of those college guys to kind of really have strength in the double and triple A levels, um, well, along with some nice quick risers that that sort of fell for whatever reason that you want to get into your system and build back up and look like steals coming down the pipe. It really feels like the Rays did their job. I think that's the really exciting thing, and uh, and it seems like the Rays got their guy. I mean, I, I truly believe that Hunter Green was probably on top of the Rays draft board. Um, and you and I kind of chatted about there being a, a tier one and tier two among like the top six prospects and put uh, Kyle Wright in that tier one alongside Hunter Green. Uh, it really seems like reading uh, the reports, watching the tape, uh, particularly on ESPN, uh, but also all the YouTube videos and, and comparing both sides of the ball, of Brendan McKay and then listening to the front office, I do wonder if obviously you and I will never see the Rays draft board, but mm-hmm. I do wonder if, uh, uh, you know what? I was saying something stupid. The Rays could have taken Brendan McKay or Kyle Wright and took Brendan McKay. It's obvious that Brendan McKay was higher than Kyle Wright on their board. So it doesn't matter <laughs> if you and I will ever see it. You and I were talking about tier one because we saw this major league projectability uh, of Kyle Wright as being a polished, you know, finished product. Really watching Brendan McKay, his repeatable delivery, his simplistic delivery, and his simple hitting, he is a natural on both sides of the ball. Uh, And I don't mean that I mean that in the the purest way. I mean, even his leg kick at the plate, which I think has just been oversimplistic and actually had me worried. Reading the scouting reports in a little bit more detail, people are actually saying, like, no, that kind of shows a maturity of the plate, that he's able to be quiet in his movements and still be extremely successful. So, uh, you know, it just shows that we're the bloggers. (laughs) We don't get paid to do this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, I, I, I think we can feel good about McKay. 
I think we can feel good about this draft. I think the race front office uh, really outdid themselves at this draft, bringing guys in from literally every corner of the map. Uh, Idaho. Who knew that there was uh, draftable prospects in Idaho? Got to keep so, that, that scouting reports ready for all the Ida, Idaho spuds out there. Man, this is this is a nice moment in Rays baseball. We don't have a lot of uh, highs. There's been a lot of lows over the last couple of years, but this week in particular, uh, even though the Rays are coming off of a five and five kind of ten game stretch, uh, this is just a really exciting time to be paying attention to the team and being uh, paying attention to the organization. And uh, hopefully we can get some injuries in the rearview mirror and really see this race team take off, uh, make that wild card berth, and and do something special this year. So, Darby, why don't you take us home? Uh, all right, yeah. So, um, as always, uh, check us out at dracebay.com. Uh, Danny mentioned uh, Jim's awesome article. There's some really good stuff this week, uh, kind of breaking down this very exciting week and some of the players that are part of it. There's an article uh, about... Jacob Faria, so you can learn more about him as well. Um, as always, uh, please do follow us on Twitter at Hit Show Podcast. Send us uh, emails at uh, draysbaypodcast at gmail.com. We do appreciate and we do read all that. And uh, please uh, subscribe and uh, rate us on iTunes. It really does help out the show. Um, thank you guys so much uh, for listening. We will see you next time. Uh, For Danny and Dustin in the studio, I'm Darby, and you've been listening to The Hit Show. The Hit Show is produced and engineered by Dustin Klingman. Make sure to check out all the newest and latest news about the Rays on DRaysBay.com. Check us out at DRaysBay on Twitter and, of course, DRaysBay on Facebook.